you cannot possibly read that book and not be enriched as a human being, empowered as a parent, enlightened as a teacher. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. Well, Andrew, we are in part two of Andrew's best book list of the year. Right. And we la- had so much fun last week. <laughs> we really did. And in fact, um, we only got a third of the way through the list where the goal was to try to get halfway through. So let's just be honest. We're just going to relax a little bit. Okay. Try to rush well, I was talking them. as fast as I could. I know. Too, yeah. <laughs> well, you might still need to. Otherwise, this is going to be a four-parter. Yeah, but no, no. Let's, let's, uh, let's pick up. In the year 2007, which is when actually my youngest son graduated from high school and when I started working for you. So that was that was a good year. And I also remember you developing your Teaching Boys talk. It's your conference talk that actually has the longest title of any other conference talk. Yes. And it's based on your book of the year for 2007, Boys Adrift by Leonard Sachs. Well, indirectly. Okay. The, the talk actually is more based on my attending a conference mm. where I was a speaker, but Dr. Sachs was a speaker. Oh, I see. And he had just recently released his book, Why Gender Matters. Ah, right, exactly. And it hit, you know, the New York Times bestseller list. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was making, even at that time, was a fairly radical argument. Right. And today would be Mm. almost intolerable to many people. But that is that there are actual differences Mm -hmm. between boys and girls. Right. The way that most boys and girls hear, the Mm -hmm. way they see, the way they handle stress, the way they handle pain, that there are neurophysiological differences completely supported by science, Mm -hmm. by research, Mm -hmm. and that this has tremendous implications for the teaching of children, both boys and girls. And I was uh, just wrapped. I I sat through his four-hour presentation. I took, I don't know, 20 pages of notes. I I wrote down everything I possibly could. And I bought his book immediately, Why Gender Matters. And I guess someone would say, well, how come that isn't the one on your book of the year list? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. I I guess because I I got so much from meeting him Mm -hmm. and learning in person and that, you know, firsthand transmission that when I read the book, it was like, oh, I knew that already. So right. mm-hmm. I, I didn't. Uh, so I had already started that teaching boys and other children who would rather be making forts all day mm-hmm. conference talk, which by far is the most attractive title to almost all homeschool parents. <laughs> um, because everyone who has kids will experience two things. All the kids are different, and the boys are different than the girls in 
almost all cases, mm-hmm. in a a general way. Mm-hmm. Now, it's always dangerous to make generalizations. People will take offense, and so Dr. Sachs was kind of fighting an uphill battle. Right, but. You know, a statistical generalization is a valid tool mm-hmm. when you're looking for best practices. Right. And so, uh, you know, that talk uh, still highly recommended. I still have done it even recently. Mm-hmm. And I always get people say, thank you. It's like you've been in my house. How did you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that is a subject. But then uh, – and Sachs went on to actually create an organization that would support – schools, Mm -hmm. even publicly funded schools, Mm -hmm. that wanted to teach boys and girls in separate classrooms. And he did a lot of work internationally with boys' schools and girls' schools. Mm -hmm. And I even went to his uh, conference a couple times Mm -hmm. uh, listening to people present research and practice best practices papers and things on how do you do that? If you have a a whole room full of boys or a whole school full of boys or a whole room full of girls or – so he he then, you know, got pretty well known in certain circles. And then his next book was Boys Adrift. Mm. And I read that and it had a whole lot of information that I had never heard before. So that's how it got on the list rather than Why right. Gender Matters. Right. And he identified uh, five factors that are undermining the success of young men in America today. Mm. And so if you, you know, look at it very objectively – even at that time, what year was that, 07? 2007, yep. Even at that time, and he, now it's even more pronounced, mm. but more college students are females than male. More uh, females generally have higher grade point average, even in high school, than males. There's kind of a problem of, kind of a widespread problem of unmotivated young adult men. And you can find this statistically as well as empirically by talking to 20-something girls who are having a hard time finding 20-something guys that are kind of up to their standards mm-hmm. in a way. Hmm. So anyway, he identified these factors. Um, he, he did, you know, one of them is video games. Mm. And he talks about the highly addictive nature of video games. Not that it's a absolutely bad thing, but you know, and we've said before, if you're doing one thing, you're not doing something else. Exactly. If yep. you're spending five, six, seven hours a day in an amusement, you're not spending that time doing something that betters you. Well, amusement, just the word itself, without thinking. Yeah, with, without right. you know, contemplation. He also talked about the devaluation of men by mm. society. Yeah. And um, now, you know, we, we kind of have seen that continue to the mm-hmm. point where – we can't even really publicly talk about it very easily, mm-hmm. but it's still there. Yep. Uh, then he talked about endocrine disruptors in the environment and in the diet. Mm-hmm. And so we have phthalates and plastics and soy-based products that are actually affecting the endocrine system of children in a very big way. And, you know, he's a doctor. He's an MD, PhD. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say things because he wants to promote a belief system. He has no agenda in that way. He is a scientist, and I, I so appreciate that about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, what's happening almost worldwide is that the diet and the pollutants, the plastics, et cetera, are feminizing boys mm-hmm. 
and also accelerating puberty in girls. So mm. there's some places in the world, you know, where the water is very, very, you know, I, I guess polluted is the mm. word. Mm -hmm. And girls are hitting puberty at younger and younger ages, mm. you know, nine, eight years old. Mm. And so that's another one. And then he goes into, in the part that overlaps with his other work, would be teaching environments mm -hmm. and teaching methods. And that, you know, one of the best ways for a boy to be successful in school is to be more like a girl. Mm. And, you know, sit down, be quiet, smile at the teacher, do what you're told, don't move around too much, don't make noise, you know, read well, concentrate. And a lot of these things that are just naturally harder for young boys. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so the book's good. Uh, just to follow up, it didn't make my list, but he had a third book. Uh, Girls on the Edge, hmm. which was kind of the companion volume he wrote a couple mm -hmm. years later about right. the things like social media and peer pressure and mm -hmm. bullying that are really taking a severe emotional toll yeah. on pre-adolescent and adolescent girls. Yeah. And then his last book was The Collapse of Parenting, right? talking about how children need parameters and we were privileged to have him as a guest on our podcast one time. That was a that was a fiery podcast yeah. recording. Yeah, I, he has a lot of energy. And yeah, that was really something. Had a lot so to we share can, with us. Yep. yeah, if people want to listen to him, that was that's a good one. Yep, it is. And it was great because my youngest daughter, who was uh, about to have her first child, mm -hmm. listened to his podcast recording with me, mm -hmm. and was very enlightened. By it as yeah. a, a future parent. It yeah. brought some thoughts out that she had never, ever really considered seriously before. Right, so. right, yep. All right, so in 2008, and so, listener, I'm just reminded that I gave a little bit of an introduction in the part one of this. We are starting in the year 2000, going all the way up to the year 2021 this year, and going through the books that Andrew chose that he said, this is the book that I'm reading this year. Or, or my best book of the year. They're your best book of the year because it yeah. you, you... Hopefully read more than one more book More than a year, one but. book a year. Well, you know, uh, yeah. In some, in some cases, people are doing well to read one book a so year. True. So there you go. So true. Okay. So in 2008, you have... Now, just for the record, Andrew... None of these yet are fiction, works yes. of fiction. Yes, well, <laughs> I, I will confess that I still do lean toward nonfiction. Yeah. But, but we're getting we're to getting some there. fiction. Yeah, yeah. But this one is called The Mysteries of Life in Children's Literature. So you're reading books about literature but not actually leading. I am it. reading the literature. I'm deep into this yes. period of reading every day sure. to the whole family at home and trying to get everyone else to do that too. That's true. And with your nurturing competent communicators talk, which you, know, you want everyone to listen to. Part part of that was my entering into this contemplation of fairy tales. Yes, mm -hmm. I became very interested. I think what caused me was that I mentioned with the nature deficit disorder, I had thought about my life so much time in nature outside, mm -hmm. a lot of it unsupervised. But then my my bookshelf at home consisted of basically the Fairy tale books, the Andrew Lang edited series, Yellow Fairy Tale Book, Red Fairy Tale Book. I had the whole collection. <laughs> and Lord of the Rings and the World Book Encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I remember reading all through my childhood. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the books that we read in school mm -hmm. at all. I'd be hard pressed to name one. Mm -hmm. But I do remember reading those fairy tales again. And then I read something 
that was talking, I think, about the Cinderella syndrome, mm-hmm. about how this creates false hope and this idea that you know every girl needs a prince, and it was mm-hmm. this real attack on the idea of you know living happily ever after. That's ridiculous. Nobody lives happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Life is full of misery, mm-hmm. and I and and so that's what kind of prompted me into this whole series of books that I I bought and I was studying. What do different people say about fairy tales? Right. You know, both mm-hmm. Christian authors and secular authors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was that was not just one of them. It was the best one of them. Ah, got it. And and I didn't say the author. This is Mitchell and maybe Calpagian. I, Calpagian. Calpagian. Okay. Yeah, and I had the privilege of meeting him a few years ago. Oh, uh-huh. he just recently died a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, and I. I guess maybe four years ago, four or five, mm-hmm. he came out for a conference. I got to pick him up at the airport and oh, nice. take him to the conference and then take him back to the airport. So I had two hours of mm-hmm. just – and he's just one of these amazing men whom – well, you just feel better for being near them, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. kind of person. Mm-hmm. They just exude love and respect and wisdom and, and then, you know, his book – I put down as the best thing that I had read in my mm-hmm. probably reading eight different books about mm-hmm. fairy tales because yep. he he goes through and not just fairy tales he even goes through different children's more modern literature things like Little House on the Prairie or things mm-hmm. and he talks about the mysteries of life so uh, the mysteries of honesty right mm-hmm. and children are drawn to deception, mm-hmm. right? From a very early age, they have to deal with the problem of how do I tell the truth when it's hard? Mm-hmm. Um, greed, the consciousness of greed. I mean, pretty much every two-year-old I've ever met is mm-hmm. like, me, 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 me. I want, I want, I want. And we have to grow out of that lest we become a 30-year-old, two-year-old, which right. nobody likes. <laughs> um, the, uh, the mystery of of abandonment. Mm-hmm. Um, a child's greatest fear, mm-hmm. according to one thing I read, isn't their own death. A child's greatest fear is the death of one or both of their parents. Yep. And next to that would be the separation of their parents. Yep. Yep. Well, you look at storytellers, you know, look at fairy tales like Hansel and Gretel, yeah. right? Or, or all the way up to Lemony Snicket and a series of unfortunate events. Here's kids that had to navigate their way through the loss of parents. And when you read a story, you know, it it activates your imagination that, yes, if the worst happened, mm-hmm. I could still somehow survive. Yep. Uh, the mystery of death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that, boy, could that could be a 20-minute podcast right there. Death and children and literature and what's appropriate and what's changed mm, right. over time. Sure. Books like A Bridge to Terabithia. Where, you know, this girl, you love her and she dies. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. But yet it's important because it's – if there's one thing that every single human being has to face the reality of, yeah. it's that we die, our yeah. mortality. Yeah. And there's been this move in modern children's literature to kind of cover up, eliminate, remove from the awareness of the conversation. And, yep. and Calpagian makes an argument and I agree with him. That's not a healthy thing. Hmm. Um, so death. Um, how about hospitality? Mm-hmm. Right, uh, entertaining angels unawares. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the idea of the blessed, the innocent are blessed, and you have this kind of bumbling, not so bright but good-hearted character mm-hmm. who then 
experiences, you know, usually through some kind of supernatural means, a blessing for his goodness, mm-hmm. the mystery of goodness, and, and even the mystery of life. And mm-hmm. that's where he finishes the book and says, mm-hmm. you know, in a world today that does not value life mm-hmm. in the same way that, that we humans always have, how many stories kind of start out once upon a time, there was a man and his wife and what they wanted more than anything was a child. And so the simplicity of home, mm-hmm. the beauty of the, the simple life, it's just so, so magnificently well discussed in that book. Mm-hmm. Um, you cannot possibly read that book and not be enriched as a human being, mm-hmm. empowered as a parent, enlightened as a teacher. So it, I think if I were to pick one book off that whole list to say, do it, th- this would be the one. And then you got to be careful, though, because he wrote more books. He wrote a book called More Mysteries of Life. Oh, dear. Okay. And then The Virtues We Need and More Virtues We Need. So his spell his name, K-A-L-P-A-K-G-I-A-N. I'll say that again. K-A-L-P-A-K-G-I-A-N. It's Greek, and it's Kalkpagian or Kalpagian with a silent K. Oh, okay. As uh, I had a conversation with his son, oh. who actually works for the classical academies in Southern California, who we do oh, yes. quite a bit of business with. Yes. Um, and I talked to his son on the phone, and he said, yeah, you can pronounce it either way. Okay. <laughs> okay, right. Okay, so then in 2009, Chance or the Dance by Thomas Howard. This book is just too profound to talk about. Okay. It is a book where you read the first page. Mm-hmm. And you just stop and you say, I must read that again. Hmm. And the title, Chance of the Dance, is basically, do we live in a universe of purpose and order Hmm. and discoverable beauty? Or do we live in an accidental universe where everything just is and there's no intelligence or reason behind it. Mm-hmm. It just happened. Mm-hmm. And what are the implications of those two ways of thinking sure. on everything about our lives? Right. So, again, Thomas Howard, a philosopher, a Tolkien scholar, a very amazing writer. Uh, he has other books. He's actually, the, believe it or not, the brother of Elizabeth Elliot. Oh, Interesting, yeah. Um, End of the Spear and, and yeah. that whole story of, yeah. of martyrdom. And so it's it's definitely just one of those books. It's it's so deep. It's so rich. It's hard to intellectually unpack it, mm-hmm. but it will affect your, your soul. Yeah. So on your list here, and I pointed this out to you, you had accidentally skipped the year 2010. And I thought, well, maybe that was a really busy year for you, 2009, 2010. Well, it, we were relocating, relocating. families and mm-hmm. business and Building a everything house and, and a business and an from office the ground up. And, yep. and how to do all that. Uh, yeah, that was the year we came here. But I did have a best book of yes, the year. Yes, I did. just, Left for some reason, omitted it. Yes, and you've brought up this book in many of your talks. And so 2010, the book of the year is Why Johnny Can't Write. Yes, part of the Why Johnny Can't Do Stuff Anymore series, right. I guess. <laughs> right. Um, so the, I think this came to me on, on an Amazon suggestion, and I, I bought it because, of course, I teach writing. So 
why Johnny can't write. Everybody wants to know the answer. Sure. So uh, Myra Linden, uh, if I recall correctly, was the w- one of the past presidents of the National Association of Teachers of English. Mm. And she and her co-author, Arthur Wimby, wrote this book. And the first half to two-thirds, probably, is just a very clear documentation. Again, primary sources, the actual research on how the writing skills of high school graduates had been in continuous decline for 20 years. Mm. The book was written in 1990. Okay. So knowing that, you say, okay, so they're looking at the decline of writing skills from 1970 to 1990. And you read this book 20 years after it was published. Correct. And I don't think there's a single person who could effectively argue or very few who would even try to argue that the writing skills of high school graduates has improved mm-hmm. since 1990. If mm-hmm. anything, it's mm-hmm. it's a steeper curve. Yeah. So that and we're puts trying us, to reverse that well, curve. Well, yeah, that puts us into 50 years yeah. of decline. Yeah. And you really can't talk to a person who teaches in a university or a college and has been there for a few decades that won't totally affirm. Mm-hmm. It's just got worse and harder mm-hmm. and worse and harder. So why did that happen? And so she identifies the two worst, and then in the second part of the book, the two best methods of teaching writing. Okay. So it's a pretty simple book, not too long. What is it, about 100 pages, 120? Mm-hmm. Two worst methods of teaching writing, as had been used over the period of her research. Number one, an over-reliance on grammar. Mm-hmm. So we just teach grammar and expect that that will make good writing. When it doesn't happen, okay. The, the problem there is that some people took that argument and said, well, if teaching grammar doesn't make better writers, why don't we just stop teaching grammar? Mm. Uh, which is where we get to another book that's on this mm-hmm. list a little mm-hmm. later. Yep. Uh, and the number one worst way to teach writing is free writing. Mm. So that idea of just you know journaling, just stream of consciousness, flow your thoughts into paper, this philosophy that if you just give kids paper an opportunity, they will learn the mm-hmm. skill. Mm-hmm. Well, hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've used the analogy. It's kind of like saying, well, if you want to play the piano, come on over to my place. I'll teach you the names and the notes and how to sit on the bench and how to push the keys and the pedals. But there's one little rule. You can't play anything other people wrote. You have to kind of make everything up every day, just fool around for five years and you'll learn to play the piano, mm-hmm. which is true. You would. But how well? Mm-hmm. Right? Then she goes on and they talk about the two best ways to teach writing, which they researched and developed over their careers. Number one, which she calls text reconstruction. Hmm. Well, that sounds awfully familiar. Mm-hmm. She even quotes Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, as I had done when I put together the TWSS seminar workbook in 94. Yes. And it's still a part of that seminar workbook uh, yeah, today. Yeah, about you know, Benjamin Franklin saying he took short hints of the sentiment of each sentence, laid the original by, and tried to reconstruct. Mm-hmm. And so she found you know that... And, com- and using text reconstruction techniques together with sentence combining. Mm. And she developed some, some materials, some curriculum materials. I don't know they're available or anything. Mm-hmm. But where you basically give kids clauses uh, that are pre 
set mm-hmm. and then show them different ways to put those clauses into one. So I look at them like dress ups, openers, keyword outlines, yep. story sequence chart. Check all the boxes. Bam. Here we are. This yep. is, you know, if only I could meet this one. She's probably not alive, but yeah. um, show her, you know, where we are with this and the tremendous results we get. So, And, of course, Dr. Webster developed his system, our system, yeah, completely independent Com- of any of this research. Yeah, yeah, completely independently. So, you know, it's one of those books that really, for for me, trying to make an apologetic for, number one, why good writing instruction and how good writing instruction, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's external empirical support for, you know, what we do. Right, right. And it's very well researched, too. It's It's got a lot of... You know, footnotes and mm-hmm, primary mm-hmm. source quotations and things. We finally get to a work of fiction, Andrew. In 2011, your book of the year was The Book of the Dung Cow by Walter Wangren. Yes. And dun means brown. brown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this, was a, this is a work of fiction. Is this a children's book? This is a children's book which would enrich the child in everyone regardless of age. uh I do not remember how I came across this book, although I think it might have been a monk friend who mentioned it first. Mm -hmm. Um, Wangerin accomplished something truly remarkable with this book. I want you to imagine Lord of the Rings meets Chicken Run. Okay. I mean, I, I don't know if that's a great combination. It, it isn't humorous like a a mm-hmm. movie, mm-hmm. but it's this epic, epic story of good and evil set in a chicken coop and a farmyard and a countryside okay. in a completely nondescript location. And there's the rooster, Chanticleer, which mm. is a clear allusion, of course, to Chaucer, Chaucer. Mm -hmm. and he has his kind of harem of hens, Mm -hmm. but there's one that he loves, Mm -hmm. and that's Pertilote. And there is this great evil that is contained inside the earth, Worm. And there's a dog, uh, Mundo Cani, who's like this total wimpy, cries about everything, miserable dog. And worm somehow gives birth to the basilisks, and there's this great war that occurs and an opening of the earth because worm has been imprisoned in the earth, and the dun cow is kind of this mysterious, prophetic, mystical character. Who so just... is he Gandalf or Frodo? He's Gandalf then, huh? No, not even? More Gandalf. Okay. <laughs> but, but subtle. Okay. More like an Elrond, like super behind the scenes. Okay, okay. And so anyway, it's just it's just this beautiful language, just some of the most beautiful prose mm. that I have ever read. Mm. And I am continuously looking for an excuse to read this book to someone. It is so magnificent. Uh, there's a sequel to it. And then Wangerin wrote, uh, several other books. He wrote a life of a, f- a fiction work on a very poorly known Saint Julian, I believe. Mm. Mm. And then he wrote a life of Jesus. Mm. He's a Lutheran minister. He wrote a book on getting cancer and facing death. Mm. Just 
one of these amazing, amazing minds. Mm-hmm. So you cannot fail to just love the book of the Dun Cow. Okay. And I remember it was the book I chose to read to my mother mm-hmm. as she was living with us during the last mm-hmm. three months of her life. Yep. And so she had uh, terminal cancer. We moved her from her home in Montana to our mm-hmm. home. And uh, I read to her, you know, every every day that mm-hmm. I had time. Mm-hmm. And that was one book that I made a point. Mm-hmm. I just thought, this is just so peaceful and beautiful and and engaging and cosmic. Mm-hmm. Just just mystically powerful. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Great. All right. So we're going to end. And that was the first fiction book on the list, huh? It was the first fiction book on the list. And so we're going to jump right into You're on a streak here, Andrew, a streak of two. And we'll end this episode <laughs> <laughs> with this. And that was 2012, Anna Karenina. Oh, gosh. I so did not want to read that book. Well, and you and I have very differing views on this particular book because you loved it. And I, I did not love it. Well, maybe you didn't read it at the right time. Maybe. I, you know, I think very often we... We somehow have an idea. This is a great book, and then we make somebody read it, mm-hmm. especially if they're in high school or college, and they just don't have the life experience. Mm-hmm. To I, I certainly – I would have hated this book if I read it when I was 22. But the way it came about is I, I asked one of the smartest people I know to be my personal reading coach, mm-hmm. uh, particularly regarding fiction because mm-hmm. I, I realized, you know, I've got to choose books carefully. I can't read that many. I don't have that many years left. What should I then read? Right. And his first assignment to me was Anna Karenina. By and I just Twister. about balked. Yeah. I'm just like, come on. Are it's you It's like serious? super thick and, yeah, and dense. And, and he goes, no, you you have to read it. If you want me to be your book coach, this is your assignment. <laughs> and it's kind of like, okay, master. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't understand, but I will. So I read it over Christmas. I tried to tackle one big, thick, long book over mm-hmm. the holidays because mm-hmm. that's when I'm not traveling and there's not as much going on and there's a bunch of people around and I can escape. Well, and just a P.S. the listener, and this is going to come out in our third of three episodes, you were often sick during the holidays too. Kind of year after year, you were yeah, just kind Yeah, I, I don't get sick unless I want to. And <laughs> I have always kind of disliked for, for a long time. Last year was my best Christmas ever. No, right. But you were legi- you were legitimately sick. Like when it was time to do a pod, uh, webinar, you're like, Julie, I can't do it. Yeah. Oh, great. Who, what are we going to do? Well, I mean, there's benefits of being sick and there's, you know, detriments. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's not fun. And to be it's sick. over the holidays, the benefits outweigh. No, but no. Anyway, but anyway, so I did. I tackled Anna Karenina. I started on the first page. I read it and, you know, my thought about it was. Anna is depressed, she's adulterous, and she finally kills herself by hurling herself under a train. Oh, I didn't get to say spoil al- and spoiler alert. And that's the story. <laughs> it's okay. But Shakespeare spoiled that, yeah. his stories all the time. He tells you on the first page, Romeo and Juliet are both going to die. Yeah. But that was my concept of the book. But that's not the real story. The real story is about Levin and Katie and his pursuit of the good life. Mm. What is the good life? And how does he win her heart? And how does he discover who he really wants to be through that? Mm-hmm. And Anna and her foibles and her totally dysfunctional world, it's a foil. 
right? It's just being there mm-hmm. so that his life is all that more magnificent. Mm. It's an interesting book in mm-hmm. that it's a combination of a whole and a whole book where good is good and bad is bad and good wins and a totally broken book mm-hmm. where good is good and bad is bad and bad wins. You've got both stories happening at the same time. And I will say that I was profoundly grateful that my book coach said, you must read this. And when I finished the book, and this is how you know, I didn't want to leave. I wanted to go back, really? and I just started reading the whole thing right again. And I didn't listen to it. I, I read it with my eyes, mm-hmm. and it did so many things for me. One is it made me just deeply and profoundly grateful for my marriage as I have it, mm-hmm. and that the world did not force or trap or lure me into such a dysfunctional type of relationship mm-hmm. as Anna. Mm-hmm. The other thing is it sold me on Tolstoy as being just a profound, insightful Christian cosmic author mm-hmm. who could articulate in story highest truths mm-hmm. beyond just, you know, a theological or philosophical explication. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just enters right into your soul. I would say of all the books, that one completely got me Onto okay, I will read fiction seriously rather than accidentally. And then my book coach trusted me after I reported back my mm-hmm. thoughts and feelings about Anna Karenina. Mm-hmm. He said, "Okay, so you actually read it." <laughs> and he's given me some pretty tough hauls. Yeah, I I did Gone with the Wind, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. was forty some hours. I mm-hmm. mean, just and that was one that you listened to monstrously long book. It's we're not gonna, on the best books of the year list. No, but. but and I was just going to say we're going to put our finger there. We'll come back and get through the rest of the book. And listener, you can find out if any more fiction made the best <laughs> book of the year list um, for Andrew. I don't starting, even remember because I'm not going to let you see. Yeah, you yeah. So we finished with 2012. We'll pick up next week with 2013. And we'll also have a conversation about the difference between reading or listening to a book and how that can make a difference in your experience. So, Okay, so we'll pick up next week, and we've got lots more to talk about. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Here you can also find show notes and relevant links from today's broadcast. One last thing. Would you mind going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast? This really helps other smart, caring listeners like you find us. Thanks so much.